All right, so sustain. We've been talking about this idea of sustain, and I've been, you know, how to keep our faith uh, going and moving and keep it, keep it sort of in a growing place. And we've been talking a little bit about um, this kind of sub-series that I've been sharing for the past, this will be the fifth week in which I've sort of been talking about the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. And we've been using that as a template for exploring how to keep faith going. It's based around Acts 16. And so uh, just again, as a reset, reminding everybody where we've been, and again, I'm not gonna go into all the details, but um, you know, this is something that happened in, in real places and in real time. It's very important for us to remember that. I mean, even the map that we're looking at, although those are identifying the ancient cities that Paul stopped at, uh, it's still that region of the world is so much in the news today. We talk about it all the time. You can see where Jerusalem is, there's Israel. You know, you go up, you've got Lebanon, and you keep moving up towards Syria, and then you, you just turn westward, you head into that big stretch of land, Turkey, Greece, across the Aegean Sea. If you were to go the other direction, eastward Jordan, you start heading towards places that are in the news all the time, right? You go east, you head towards Iraq, Iran, um, keep going further, the Far East as well, you know, India and China. That, that is the direction. This is the place in the world we're talking about, though. And this, the Middle East has always been a real uh, significant part of, of the world because, as you can see, it saddles the two primary sort of um, historic ancient continents, right? Europe to the west and then Asia to the east. This is where the Bible was happening. If you recall, the first Christians were moved to follow Jesus after his death because they had met the risen Savior. They believed that his death was not the final word. Shockingly, to all of them, he was who he said he was, the risen Savior. One of his harshest critics met him in a way that he couldn't have imagined. Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of Pharisees, had this astonishing confrontation. He said, with the living Jesus on the road to Damascus, altered his life. He becomes a, a fierce ambassador for the cause of Christ. Um, he wants to take the message of Jesus to the Jewish people, his own people, but also to the Gentile world, the Greeks and those who've been uh, non-Jewish communities affected by what at that time was the Roman Empire. But uh, it was a culture that he was very comfortable with. And so he was a man of two cultures, really, capable of, of bringing the message of Jesus in a, in a sense like no one else had been able to do. Um, you can see that there's another Antioch of Syria. That's where the early church actually takes root as not simply a Jewish church like it had been in Jerusalem. But in Antioch, you have for the first time in the history of the world a coming together of Jewish and Gentile believers as, Christian, as a significant Christian expression. In fact, it's in Antioch of Syria where people are first called Christians. There is where Paul, on his, what we know as the first missionary journey, had a, a ministry partner named, Sil named Barnabas, actually. And they had, if you recall, for the first time, planted these churches. You can see some of them, Lystra and Derby and Iconium. You can see some of that, those places. Well, it was in Paul's heart a few years later to go back and see how those churches were doing. And if, if some of us may come back to this, when Acts 16 opens up, everybody, Paul says to his, his ministry partner, Barnabas, what do you think about going back and visiting the churches we planted, seeing how they're doing, checking up on them? What do you think about making a second missionary journey, right? A second journey to go see them. Th that sounds great, Barnabas says, but they end up actually having a, a disagreement. And in fact, the disagreement becomes so fierce between them that we know that they actually agree to disagree. It was over who to be, who, how to make that team up and over a young man named John Mark, Barnabas wanted to give him a second chance. 
Paul said he had his chance, he blew it. I don't want to do I don't want to take a chance. I can't take the chance of having him back out again. They end up having such a strong difference of opinion, they part ways. Paul says, fine, I'll just find another person to go with me. What what we talked about there was that at the very outset then of their venture, there it begins with relational conflict. And you would think, well, God is in this, and yet it starts with relational conflict, a breaking of ways. Paul and his new ministry partner, Silas, decide they're going to go for it. They go by land through Tarsus, head westward, right? You see it? They pick up a young man in, in, in Lystra, young leader named Timothy. He joins their team, three-man team. Paul's thinking, okay, now we've kind of come to a key place where we've gone about as far as we went before in terms of these cities. We need to decide what does the Lord want us to do? He had a clear sense of what he thought God wanted him to do. In his mind, the city of Ephesus, which is one of the great cities, you can see it there, of the era, in Asia, it was called Asia Minor. That was the place where he thought and assumed the Lord wanted him to go to take this message of Jesus. It had a large contingent of Jewish community, a Jewish community with a lot of those who had been Gentiles but were very open to the God of Israel, and they had actually become believers themselves. And so in his mind, Ephesus is the place to go. But the scripture says... The Spirit warned him and said, don't go there. So Paul's first choice, which was to go to Ephesus, the Lord put some type of a roadblock. So in his mind, he's thinking, and we talked about this, oh, then I'll go northward towards the Black Sea. That's where the Lord must want me to go. But it says the Spirit of Jesus prevented him and warned him again. No, that's not the direction you're supposed to go. He doesn't know what to do. He knows he's here for a reason, doesn't know which way to go. Can't go back, can't go the direction he wanted, can't go north. There's only one real option left. We talked about it. Sometimes when you don't know what to do, when you're not clear and doors are shutting, stay on the path you're on. He stays on the road. You see where it leads him. He says, well, then let's just go forward. I don't know what God has in mind. I don't know what we're supposed to do. We're going forward. He goes all the way to the edge of land. He hits water. You can see where Troas is. What do we do? I don't know. In Troas, near the ancient city of Troy, he doesn't, he's come to a place where he's not sure what God is wanting him to do next. He has this, you read about it, Acts 16, he has a, a vision at night. He, he has this dream. In this dream, he sees this man dressed in Macedonian clothing. That would be a clothing that he could distinguish and saying, come and help us. Paul wakes up. They have, at that point, they've added a fourth member to their team, a doctor, actually, a physician named Luke, who ends up recording what happens in the book of Acts. Luke joins their team. Paul says, you're not going to believe I had this. I know what God wants us to do. God wants us to go. He showed me this man from Macedonia calling, crying out. The reason God led us here is because he wants us to go and cross the, cross the Aegean and take this message to the Greek people, to the Macedonians. He wants us to cross over. And, and, it, and it would be, by the way, the first time ever in the history of the world the message of Jesus would land in Europe at the edge of the European continent. At the edge of Europe, it would hit. The message of Jesus would come. Paul says, let's get on it. They bought a ticket. Remember we talked about that last week? Buy the ticket. We bought the tickets. They went... They got on, they started sailing towards um, the, the uh, land of Macedonia, the port town of Neapolis there. They stopped in Samothrace. One of the things we know, they didn't travel at night. They were able to stop there and then the following day complete their journey. The wind we know was with them, which is fantastic. Where's this man from Macedonia? They get to Neapolis. Neapolis is still a port city today. 
very significant city. They're looking, it means new city. They get there and they think, okay, we mu- the Lord must want us to go to the, the, the city of Philippi, which was a city that the Romans had um, planted. It was a colony of Rome. Rome would sometimes do this. They would, they would try to occupy territory and they would plant an official colony. In this case, it was at the end of what was known as the Ignatian Way, which connected to the Appian Way, which led them all the way back to Rome. Hence the phrase, some of us have heard it, all roads lead to Rome. That phrase is because their system of transportation was part of what allowed them to really conquer so much of the known world. They were amazingly capable road builders. It also is not coincidence that the message of Jesus comes out at this critical time in history when the road systems for travelers and the safety of the Pax Romana exists and allows for the message to go in the far corners of the world. Having said that, there's this city called Philippi. It's a Roman colony. In this colony, um, soldiers who had fought in Roman wars were allowed to go and occupy land, not pay, have to pay taxes, and were given land if they were willing to move there. So we know that in Philippi, there was a significant contingent of, of former Roman soldiers who had families now. There was also um, a lot of other kinds of people there as well. Again, Macedonians predominantly. Cities, ruins are still there today. Significant place in history because it's there where the Apostle Paul and his team land. They are looking, we may assume, for the man from Macedonia. We talked about this. The one in his vision, come to us. They get to Philippi. They're looking for a synagogue. That would have been the first place they would have gone. If you had 10 men, Jewish men, you could have a synagogue. But there was not enough of a population of of Jewish people, evidently, to even have a synagogue. So they didn't know what to do. What is God doing? Again, it just seemed like every time they thought they knew what they were supposed to do, they were met with some type of a roadblock. They say, well, let's go to the river. We hear there's a prayer gathering there. There's some Jewish uh, people who are there, some Jewish women gathered there as well. And we know that they go there and they end up having this wonderful, stunning, remarkable exchange as they talk about Jesus. There, there are a group of women who have been very devout, who, one of whom is a very prominent businesswoman, which in that day, a very patriarchal culture, means that she was um, a very capable woman. Her name was Lydia, we're told. And she was a believer in the God of Israel, but a Gentile. She was someone who had a thriving business and an extensive household and holdings. She was a seller of what was known as purple. There was a purple dye in Thyatira that was used for certain exquisite clothing. And if one was good at it and knew how to conduct their business, they could become very wealthy selling that merchandise. And she evidently had become an extremely wealthy woman, but she was devout. She loved God. And when Paul and and Barnabas and the team brought the message of Jesus, the Bible says, and I love the way it says it, she opened up her heart to the Lord and her entire, and she said, she believed in Jesus. She opened up her heart and her entire household came. Now, what I want to do then is sort of read through. Now, I'm going to read this through. If you have your Bible app, because I'm going to read through the portion that actually precedes the part that's in the handout. So if you have your Bible, your Bible app, or you just want to follow along, we're going to rotate it through the screen. You can look at it with me as we move forward. But I want to kind of summarize where we, what I just said, and we'll pick right up. It says that on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside. That's what I just told you about. 
where we were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was also a worshiper of God, a believer. The Lord opened up her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, so part of that message was, you know, if you really believe, then I want you also to be baptized, right? As a, as a confession of that belief in Jesus, right? It says that she was baptized in her household as well. All those who were attached to her, as would have been the custom of those in the Eastern cultures, their entire household would follow the leader of the house in this sense. As she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, would you come to my house and stay? I would love for you you don't seem to have a place. We I would love for your team to stay at my house. She had an extensive house. We know that. We also know that Lydia's home becomes the gathering place and the meeting place for the first church in Philippi. And it's a wonderful thing. And it, but now watch the shift that occurs, right? Watch what happens next. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. I did some research on this, and the consensus was that she was a slave or a pythoness from Delphi or Pytho, as it was called, the world-famous shrine of Apollo on the southern slope of Mount Parnassus that overlooked the Gulf of Corinth. She was consulted, it would seem, by the rich and the famous and as a kind of fortune-teller and was owned not so much by a person, but it was seen by a syndicate who profited off of her dark gift. She followed Paul and us, crying out, most likely in a very mocking, eerie kind of way, but mocking them daily. Paul says that the, uh, uh, these, she would say things like, she, look what she, what she said actually was true, but it was the way she said it. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And the scripture says she kept doing this for many days. So Paul coming off this really wonderful moment of Lydia and, and the openness of, of a group of people to the Lord and the message, realizing wow, it wasn't a man from Macedonia. It was a woman and, this, and then now the whole message of Jesus is opening up. But now he's having to deal with this, this woman who can, who's kind of like possessed or demonized, if we can put it that way. And she is, is mocking them daily as they move, their, move through the city and in the center court. And it becomes a problem. And she, Paul says she kept doing, kept doing this for many days. Paul, it just it, it kind of had that, that feeling of not someone who is like, you, it, it felt weird. Like I said, mocking. Uh, it, 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 he could tell that it was not being done in, in a right kind of way, but in a way that was just kind of a, undermining their purposes. And, he, and it says that Paul, having become greatly annoyed. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right. Finally, it was building up in him on a daily basis. He could feel the darkness of the spirit. Finally, he turned, to this, turned and said to the spirit, right? Because clearly what had happened is, is that there was something going on. Says, and, and he turned to the spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ uh, to come out of her. And it was almost like, yeah, I've had enough. He felt the time was right to confront the spirit of darkness. And it says that it came out that very hour. 
And it really is a, a tale, isn't this? Of two, you read this piece, you read Lydia, and you read, what, you read about this woman whose name we do not know. All right? Lydia, this amazing woman, businesswoman, opening her heart to Jesus. And this other woman right on the back side of it who seems to be tormented, uh, demonized. She's being used to traffic and make money. Um, it's a pattern, by the way, that has sadly and tragically repeated itself in one form or another for millennia and still is with us now. She was being, she was being used. And uh, that, that using uh, still today is, is a blight, an indictment of humanity. But this woman who had evidently had some occultic experience, had been, was being used to somehow make money, had some type of uh, exposure to darkness and the occult, and it had, it had dominated her life, but her holders, if you will, um, had, had been able to utilize that in a way that could make them very wealthy. And so you have this picture of a slave woman being used for who knows what and in what ways to make money for a group of, of men and people, a syndicate of, of sorts, to take advantage of her, whatever traumatizes, you know, she, even that yelling out kind of, it, you know, it reminds us that somehow there, there, that some of this it just seems to be that when someone is traumatized at a spiritual level, I mean, I'm a, I, I think sometimes, not all, but there are times I think some elements of mental illness is that we know the evil one preys on the weakness of the mind. And in, in her case, it probably was a, a a number of things that had contributed to her becoming what she was, which is interesting, speaking out in a public way, yelling at the men, right? Feeling almost provoked by what Paul and, and Silas were doing in the team. It was like she just kept on them spiritually, yelling out at them, randomly mocking. It was a, she was a, tra tra a woman with great trauma and darkness inside of her who had been used and violated at a number of levels and seemed to have this ability to make money for people, right? This is the picture we're given. And what happens is Paul has enough and he turns to her and he must have had a sense from the Lord that the time is now. And, in, and he speaks the word in the name of Jesus. I call you out. And, he, and, and, the, and all of a sudden you could imagine it, but what the way the Bible describes it, she's like a different, it's like something changes in her countenance. And whatever that was in her, whatever that spirit that had been, been there and how it got there and the things that she had, had been exposed to and pushed into and used for, all that was like, all of a sudden it was gone. And she's a different person. And, her peop and the, the people who own her immediately recognize that this person who's been able to function as kind of a fortune teller and make them a lot of money is not the same person. And now, from a purely business standpoint, in their mind, who are these guys who have just taken us our profit away? And they call them. Now watch it. Watch what happens next. It says they call it got, and by the way, it gets ugly fast. I mean, it gets ugly fast. We tend to, to downplay it, but watch what happens. It says, but when the owners saw that their hope of gain, check this out, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers in the forum. There would have been this thing, um, there would have been a judgment seat. It's called the Bema. And the magistrates who represented the city would have been brought, and they would have been brought, Paul and Silas were brought before them thrown before them, and a case was made, and look what the case is. 
And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. That was their first thing that they said about them. They're basically outsiders. All right? You can see even then there was an element of this that existed. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans, which wasn't true, by the way, to accept or practice. And then, the, so instead of saying what the real reason was, they start calling them, they're calling them uh, pe people who are preaching these weird doctrines or trying to undermine our Roman law. And all of a sudden, we're told that a mob breaks out in the middle of the marketplace, right? A mob breaks out. The crowd joined in. Everybody starts jeering all of a sudden, and they start attacking them. And it says the magistrates tore the garments off them, gave them orders to beat them with rods. Watch what's happening. And when they had flitted many blows, I mean, they rip off their, rip their clothes, they rip their clothes off, they're going at them. They, and then they say, beat them, they beat them. And then they drag them up. Paul's, Paul and Barnabas are probably going, we're Roman citizens too. You can't do this to us. Right? They're being dragged into the cell. Not only are they brought to the, to the place, the prison, but we're told they're put into the uh, inner prison. Those prisons would have been bad enough. Rat-infested Water, damp, dark, awful, no air, and then to be put in the inner prison of that, it, it would have been horrific. That's the picture we're given, okay? I think we downplay the severity and the humiliation of what happened, by the way. They were bleeding. They were in pain. They were... This one... They were humiliated. Paul was a Roman citizen. It was unlawful to happen to a Roman citizen. But the crowd had gotten so out of hand, ginned up by this group who were angry that the woman had been changed by these men. Basically, they just flew into a rage. And by the time it was done, they're a bloody mess and they're humiliated. They've been stripped down, thrown into a prison cell. And then we're told that they were locked into stocks. Um, it's stunning. You know, I'm reminded of how fast things had turned for the apostles. They had, they had come to Philippi because the Lord had led them. Remember that? The man from Macedonia in the vision. And then to see the remarkable opening with Lydia. Oh, God is in this. God is in this. And then <laughs> in a matter of, of days, now this is what had happened. It was awful. The whole thing exploded into chaos. Look what it's, okay, now go to your handout. Now you pick up the verse, verse 24. Here we go. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. He fastened their feet in the stocks, and it was about mm, midnight. So again, the stocks, uh, they're thrown in the inner cell. They would, have been, they would have had these clamps put onto their feet, right? That's the picture we're given here. It says that they were put into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. About, and then about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, psalms to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was this great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because if one prisoner escaped, he would be held accountable. He assumed that a whole group of them had left 
He felt like, I'm already a dead man. He was about to take his own life. All of a sudden, we're told, he draws his, draws his sword. And he's about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Miraculously, the doors had not seemed to have allowed for them all to go. And they were still essentially in there. Paul cried with a loud voice, and the jailer called for the lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, ah, you must be from, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house, and he took them that same hour of the night, he washed their wounds. What a remarkable change. And he, and he himself was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And this got me thinking really deeply about this. I love the passage. It's intense. It's powerful. It's colorful. It's, but here's one thing we cannot miss. People are listening to our lives. And I just want to put this up there. When it comes to sustainment, never let us forget this. By the way, there was something about that 25th verse that moved me because when I was looking at it, I thought, okay, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns, but that phrase, and the prisoners were listening to them. I thought, wow, they were listening to them. And prisoners were listening. People, people listen. Hear me out. Family members and friends and people we work with who know we have some affection for Jesus. You know, we go to church and we're kind of these, a, com a committed follower of Jesus. They listen to our lives. People listen to how people who claim to love him walk through things. They listen to how we walk through unfair things, hard things how we walk through painful things and anxious places and angry places when we're unfairly treated. And God, help us to sing songs in the darkness. Help us to, to, to sing songs in the dungeon. I mean, they were doubly confined. Not only were they in prison, they were in stocks, their feet, but they, in their suffering, they could still sing. And I, try, I tried to imagine that moment, you guys. I, I was trying to, I was looking at it, I was going, ah, what is that moment like, right? I just read it, we just read it. Okay, they get, they're, they're beat up. All he did was try to stop that darkness from dominating the message that they were trying to present it, a confrontation occurred, she set free. The next thing he knows, they're just beaten to a pulp, they're humiliated, they're trying to tell him, we're Roman citizens, you can't do this to us, it doesn't matter, the group is so angry, so riled up, they strip them down, they beat them to a pulp, their back's bloody, then they get thrown, not in the, just, they get thrown in the inner prison, and again, I'm, I was reminding myself, I said, okay, don't run past that too fast, their feet are locked down, oh, yeah. they're bleeding, oh, they can't move. I can't move. I tried to imagine the conversation a little bit. Uh, you think Barnabas regrets you coming with me, Silas? Uh, uh, why, why, why would God do this? I didn't hear that. 
Ah, back hurts so bad. Oh. Oh. What do you, Silas, Silas, uh, think, think we should, I think we should pray. <laughs> pray, okay. And they start praying, and the next thing you know, they start singing. Ah, oh, I don't even know what they sang. I don't know what they sang. You know, thank you. I, all I know, I mean, I find it so powerful, so powerful. I mean, you're in pain. Am I locked? I can't move. I can't move. It hurts to move, but I need to move. I can't move. Oh, God. Lord, where are we? Oh, let's pray, Lord. They start praying. This, and I don't know who started it first, but I just, around midnight, ah, oh, God. Oh, God, how good you are. Oh, God, I mean, it's powerful. It's powerful. Ah, your love for us, Lord. I mean, you start, they start singing. Start singing. People are hearing it, echoing. They're singing away. They're singing their prayer. I thought, what a, do you know what a powerful dynamic that is? In the place of suffering, when we are hurting, when they're disappointed, we feel like, like I'm humiliated, I'm angry. To be able to start to praise God, I found that in the, I'll put this up. It's in the paint. Praise is powerful. It is. It really is. There is a powerful praise, power in praise, and there is a power of, pra- there is a power of praise in a painful place. Now, that's a tongue twister. Power of praise in a painful place. Pat, I need you to do this for me. All right, turn to someone on the left and your right. Say, there is a power of praise in a painful place. Go for it. Come on, just go for it. Power of praise in a painful place. There is a power of praise. Oh, this like, it's like these places when we find ourselves in life where we're hurting. And I'll tell you, some of the most profound moments, most profound moments of breakthrough in my own heart have come in the painful place. But in the painful place, where it doesn't make sense, where I'm hurting or I'm hurt. Oh, some of you may hurt. You say, Lord, I don't, I, I praise you. I pray, I choose to praise you, God. Oh, God, my God, how good you are to me. Your love, God, like a healing stream. We praise you in this hour, God. We bless your name. Sing to you for your goodness. I don't know. Just praise him. Praise. Ah, praise you, God. You see what I'm talking about? The most powerful moments in our lives will come in the painful places when we choose to sing to the Lord in our suffering. I sing to you of your goodness, God. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Bless your name. Oh, my soul, I bless your name. The power of praise in a painful place. You know what comes? Earthquakes come. Things are shaken when we praise him in a painful place. Reality gets altered in the painful place when we praise him. When I sing my song of gratitude, when I have been humiliated and my back is bloody and I can't even move, I will praise you, God. Power, power right there. 
deep work in the soul right there. That's where it goes, right down. That sets you free. You can be in chain and free, very free. And here's one more thing to throw out there on that, right behind it is this, there's a power in combined praise and a blessing and a blessing in having another person to sing the songs with. I mean, I love what a part of what I love about this is that it wasn't just Paul singing on his own. It was brother. What do you think? Should we, we, we let's sing two better than one. That's why we always talk about the value of community. Don't be an outsider. Be an insider. Get involved. Be part of a community, a small group. Uh, serve on a ministry team. Build friendships. Sing songs together in the suffering places. And watch God do amazing things. He sends earthquakes. That's the value. Last thing I'll say, I'll leave it right here on that, is that God often uses, I love this. I hope you see it. God often uses our painful places to welcome others into his amazing grace. The painful place to welcome others into his amazing grace. Out of that whole thing, a whole house, the, the jailer is saying, who are you guys? I'm open to this Jesus. Prisoners probably as well, more than a few. What is this? His whole house, my whole house, you come. You all come into my house, a hard man. Come into my house. I'm open, I'll be baptized now, now, bap yes. It's powerful. We, we are church, we exist. We talk about our mission statement all the time. To live, yes, in San Francisco, but wherever we can go. What is our purpose? To live out our faith. We talk about it, our mission statement. To live out our faith in Jesus and invite others into life with him. This is what we're talking about. It's like we live a life not perfect, not perfect, but real, authentic, genuine, and maybe showing up at its finest when it's hardest, where the real growth happens, when it costs me something to praise you. Do you know what that's called in the Psalms? That's the sacrifice of praise. I praise you. In my brokenness, I praise you. Even, even now, I praise you. I praise you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness to me. Mm. And when we do this, we praise him in the painful place. We become extensions of his amazing grace. And it should not surprise us when other people are affected by the reality of Jesus they see in imperfect people like you and me, irresistibly drawn to his grace, the amazing grace that flows when we praise him in the painful place. All right, we will pray. Let's do this together. And Lord, we ask you to bless our time that we've just had. Maybe sometimes some of us are in the painful place now and might have to do with a relationship, a hurt, a wound, something we face, I don't know. Wherever our hurt is, God. Um, a loss, um, a dream, not to be, whatever, God. It, everything we lay at your feet, Lord, a suffering we're walking through, we want to lay it at your feet. Other of us may not be there, but inevitably in life, if we live long enough, we will have these places where it will be so easy, Lord, to say, where are you, God? Why did you let us say, we're doing your work, and this is what I get. But instead, to choose to praise you there, to embrace you. Oh, your love defends me, Jesus.
your love defends us. And I ask that we would open up our heart just like Lydia did. Lydia opened up her heart to you and you did amazing things. Keep our hearts tender and open. And I thank you, Lord, yes, even for the hard times because it's often there when my heart opens up. It's the easiest to open it up right there. So bless our time as we close this service with our song and with um, our time of giving. I ask for your blessing over it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.